This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery. I'm Stuart Craner. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast. Today, my guest is Richard Devaney. Richard is a professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. He's the author of Hypercompetition, Beating the Commodity Trap, Strategic Capitalism and Strategic Supremacy. He was the recipient of the Thinkers 50 Strategy Award in 2017 and is in the top 10 of the Thinkers 50 ranking. Uh, Richard's latest book is The Pan-Industrial Revolution, How New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. Richard, welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to be able to, to participate in this. But it's amazing looking at your your career. I mean, you kind of you coined the term hypercompetition, and I've just read out the the, the string of uh, thought-provoking books you've produced since then. What what what's the golden thread that links your work? Do you think? Well, I think there's a, a couple of themes. Uh, one is to look into the future, uh, not just report what's happening now, and uh, number two is to look at what's changing and then what are the strategic implications. And number three, I guess, would be uh, the idea of uh, each one of these leads to another one that describes how the nature of competition is changing. So in hyper-competition, I predicted that it would be a very disruptive uh, environment. with a lot of change uh, and uh, competence-destroying activities. In the strategic um, uh, supremacy book, uh, I then started to talk about how uh, large companies, global companies, would play the the chess match uh, for staking out different locations and product lines um, around the world and how you get a visualization of that. Uh, and that paralleled uh, um, what happened um, a, a, a in the future of that book uh, as China really uh, entered the, the WTO and the world started to change. And then um, I looked at, you know, the competition between the United States and China, um, and, uh, and that was in strategic capitalism and looked at what are the weaknesses in the Chinese system and how the United States can go after that. And one of the important weaknesses was uh, 3D printing uh, because it eliminates a lot of assembly, which is a big cornerstone of the Chinese economy. Um, And now I'm just writing about 3D printing. So it was kind of a, a stream of thought that, that took place, but no long-term plan. I did more like exploration. <laughs> yeah, well, you are a strategy professor. What, what, what about 3D printing? How, how did you first get interested in it? When I first saw 3D printers in action, immediately what came to mind was uh, science fiction. I thought, geez, this is a miracle. And... Um, uh, and it looked to me like, you know, things out of uh, Westworld and the Star Trek's replicator. And so I, I basically hired a group of 
uh, engineers to teach me about uh, about the technologies that make up 3D printing. And then uh, uh, once I had a handle over that, I, I, I was really excited because now I can start to play with it in terms of what are the implications? How is it going to change the way we compete? Uh, and, uh, and so that's how I got there. Uh, um, and, and along the way, of course, Industry 4.0 uh, showed up. Um, but Industry 4.0 and what I was uh, uh, thinking well, didn't match up very well because Industry 4.0 is, is basically a kind of improvement to traditional assembly line methods. I viewed it as kind of the last gasp of the manufacturing paradigm from uh, the last century. And that uh, the pan-industrial uh, revolution would be essentially not enhancing that, but destroying the principles of manufacturing that were laid out by Henry Ford and, uh, and um, uh, the School of Scientific Management. Uh, and I tried to say, well, what would the new paradigm look like and what would, the, what would that mean for uh, how organizations compete? What's fascinating in the book is the, some of the stories you tell that, of how 3D printing is already being used. So, for instance, uh, you, you, you report that GE recently invested $1.4 billion in acquisitions in 3D printing companies. Then you've got Lockheed Martin filed a patent for the additive manufacturing of jet airplanes. So which means that one, one day a country will be able to print an air force on the spot for just-in-time defense. I mean, I mean, it does read like science, science fiction. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it's true. <laughs> and, and the thing about your story about, um, well, it's not a story. It's written that, the amazing thing is these things are reality. The um, uh, Fabien Cousteau, a grandson of um, Jacques Cousteau, is testing 3D printing of artificial coral reefs, and HTC is already already producing 15 million 3D printed cell phone antennas a year. So all this is happening, and that's the amazing thing that you you think it's science fiction. And what's interesting in your book is that you you struggled to get access to the the reality behind this. Yes, that's true. Um, and in some ways, the secrecy that all the companies have about their technologies and because so much of what's going on is also in smaller startups, uh, uh, that information isn't getting out to the, to the world. Um, I, I found companies are very careful about saying what they're doing. In fact, they're quite disciplined. And in addition to that, uh, you know, they also don't want to stir up problems with people who might resist it. You know, if you're, if you're buying a Mercedes, do you really want to know that it was all printed plastic? So customers could react. And a lot of places are worried about union reactions because a lot gets automated by 3D printers. And uh, so they're trying to uh, not hide it, but at least stay on the down low. And, and it's worth, I mean, this book is not, I mean, the starting point for this book is, is 3D printing, but really it's about a, a real radical shift in corporate power. Yes, that's, that's the part where it really got 
uh, interesting to me. Of course, I was fascinated by the technologies because 3D printing is not just one technology. There's many different ways, um, often determined by what kind of material you want to use. And each of these technologies are kind of different states of development. Um, so uh, sorting that out was also uh, a big issue. Uh, near the end of the book, um, I have kind of a set of tables that uh, show you where various industries have uh, uh, progressed uh, to in terms of the adoption of, of 3D printing. So once you master the, the, the technology, not that I'm capable of being an engineer at this point, but I'm at least capable of talking to an engineer and sounding intelligent. Um, and uh, then you start to ask, well, what does it mean for uh, uh, factories? What are they going to look like? And what happens if we connect them to a digital platform, an industrial platform? It, it basically translates into uh, one, big, one big giant world, which is almost instantaneous flexibility. Companies can add and drop products, add, uh, improve new ones on the fly. Uh, they get rid of all of these switching costs that are plaguing uh, traditional manufacturing. No expensive molds are made or dyes are made. You simply design a product in a file and then drop that file into the 3D printer. Um, on occasion, you have to change materials, um, which means that uh, what that you have to clean out the pipes and so forth. But we're talking about a matter of a day and a half compared to uh, months and months and months of time with conventional manufacturing. Um, and that flexibility now starts to allow you to use your machine uh, for all kinds of new products, which indicates that you can now have very highly uh, diversified firms all printing out of the exact same equipment instead of having the traditional conglomerate where each division has its own equipment and, and production and there might be a little bit of shared uh, activity here. You, could, uh, you can make everything all at once. And, um, uh, you know, one minute a bicycle part, the next minute an automobile part. A uh, minute after that, uh, you could be making uh, uh, metal for toys and, and brackets that go up on the wall, uh, you name it. So, um, so when I realized that, I started to ask myself, well, what kind of company is this? How do I label it? And it appeared to me to be a new kind of kind of firm, which I labeled as a pan-industrial, uh, uh, meaning that it spans uh, many, many industries, merges them together. Um, and even the production process starts merging together. So uh, I'll give you a simple example. When we made a drone, we used to make the body of the drone and uh, and then th that company, the OEM, would go out and buy 
the electronics and uh, from a company uh, like like Raytheon or or one of the other big electronics companies, and then we would stuff them inside. But the examples that I found, uh, for example, the HCC antennas, the method by which the, that is uh, being made allows you to make the body and the electronics all at the same time and embed the electronics into the, uh, the body of the, uh, uh, of the drone. So, so uh, uh, one, one process um, and you've got it all uh, and you've got it all done. Uh, so, uh, so there's a kind of super convergence going on between uh, markets on the supply side. And then I notice on the demand side uh, that the same thing is happening. If you look at uh, uh, some of the new agricultural equipment, let's say a harvester, it will roll across your uh, property using GPS and no driver. Uh, it will measure temperature, humidity, uh, uh, properties of the soil in terms of uh, whether it's depleted or not, um, and lots of other things and uh, that can be used to advise the farmer to, um, uh, you know, add this kind of fertilizer in the future. Uh, you know, we have this evidence of infestation. Uh, it's a, uh, a lower than normal effort, so you can ease up on, uh, I mean, a lower than uh, normal uh, level, so you can ease up on the amount of insecticides that you use, and so forth and so on. And so and when you step back from that, look at it from, you know, the 10,000 uh, foot view, and look down on it, you start to say, well, what's the difference between that new modernized machine and the Mars rover? Um, <laughs> measuring the same things. Uh, and as a consequence, I realized that, you know, the customers are starting to want this pan-industrialism, um, and that couples together with the ability to create it. And then I was just waiting for the right time, uh, and a number of new developments have popped up in the last year or two, um, have really uh, kind of primed the pump for all of that to come together. Uh, so, uh, so that's kind of the summary of how I got to what the the core is of this book. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's probably worth uh, retreating slightly to think about the, the terms because I know they are. I mean, this is an entire new language for organisations and manufacturing. So, three D printing is any of various processes in which material is joined or solidified under computer control to create a, a three-dimensional object with material being added together. So I think 3D printing, that's 3D printing. Then the other element of this is additive, what is known as additive manufacturing. So that's any kind of production in which materials are built up to create a product rather than cut, molded, or otherwise reduced into shape which is the old-fashioned subtractive manufacturing. So that, those are the kind of the, the base terms. But then you've got your, your pan-industrial companies, which, which the book brilliantly charts. So they operate in multiple industries. Uh, so the old kind of industrial silos are, will become a thing of the past. 
and they rely on additive manufacturing for much of their production and they use a digital platform to connect and optimize the the multi-industry factories in which they operate is, is, is that a fair ac accurate summary of, of their characteristics rich uh, yes um, yeah thank you for explaining that i i think you did a good job <laughs> I was explaining it to myself as much as the audience. <laughs> the, so, the, the, so these these new pan-industrial companies already exist? Uh, no, not yet. I'd say that there are some prototypes working their way towards that. Yeah, which, um, which, which are the prototypes? I would have listed GE until it imploded for other reasons. Uh, and GE started down the right path but then basically is being dragged down by the uh, uh, other divisions of the company which are bleeding cash. And it's not clear how much of GE will be left after the sell-off process in order to pay off the company's debt. Um, so GE may or may not get there, and a lot will depend on the pieces that um, they don't sell, and on um, whether or not they decide to keep uh, GE additive. Um, because I can imagine right now that uh, there's a kind of feeding frenzy going on uh, over the various divisions of GE. And GE additive would be the um, would would be something that could be purchased and put at the center of any number of companies who want to transform from being conglomerates into being pan-industrials. Um, and the key difference there is the operational synergies and flexibility that the pan-industrials uh, bring because of their additive manufacturing and their digital platforms. So the bottom line is that flexibility rules the day and that indicates a faster rate of competition, lots of new products coming out. Uh, it indicates that uh, companies will become much more diverse than today and that Wall Street will have to adjust to the fact that there's now companies that could be uh, converted into pan-industrials and there's no need to break them up because they're not really conglomerates. Um, so. If you took the GE additive and dropped it into the center of United Technologies, it could play the same role that it did at GE. Or you can drop it into the center of any other highly diversified uh, uh, business, um, whether it's uh, a, a business that has hundreds of different water measurement and plumbing and piping supplies and things like that, or, uh, or whether it's a company like, like Hire that makes thousands of products, or like uh, uh, Panasonic or, or Sony, thousands of products being made, so they already have the elements of the pan-industrialism there. It's now a matter of uh, pulling them together and breaking down the boundaries between the different divisions. I think that kind of um, kind of summarizes that. The, the company that I believe is furthest along 
uh, is uh, a company called Jable. They've built an absolutely uh, fantastic uh, digital platform uh, for supply chain uh, measurements and risk and uh, uh, me uh, measurements of, of you know what's going on in the supply chain. The, um, they're a contract manufacturer. They already make thousands of products um, and many brand products. Um, they're now beginning uh, their effort to um, uh, install and utilize a uh, a number of different kinds of printers, uh, the most important of which is uh, the Hewlett Packard uh, MJF uh, printer, which uh, makes uh, plastic objects at a speed that's 50 to 100 times faster than uh, you could print those items just uh, a year ago. And so they're installing these printers and and other companies printers all around uh, all around the globe and they're working on converting their factories from being single products to being multi-product um, uh, uh, factories or uh, multi-nodal as it's called inside the, the, the network uh, language uh, and so this network of plants now has many more opportunities instead of going from plant A to B and then B to C and then get shipped, the product can go from A to B, C, D, E, F and then back to C or, so you can, uh, you can recognize that all sorts of uh, uh, new routing opportunities take place and you can route things to be closer to the uh, to the customer, uh, so as a consequence, Jable is the closest there um, uh, uh, in moving forward in terms of building up the technology. Uh, another company that I think is moving in that direction is Siemens, and Siemens is doing it by building out digital and additive manufacturing software in small bundles um, with specific purposes. So the customer doesn't have to buy a, an entire system at once uh, or plug into an entire system, uh, but they can, uh, Siemens can make their, um, their customers uh, essentially a little pregnant. Um, and then once they get them with multiple uh, pregnancies at the same time, it becomes easy to say, well, we can now sell a coordinating software as a capstone that pulls all of these things together into a system. So uh, uh, that's what I think that uh, Siemens' approach is towards, towards getting there. And, and of course, they use uh, these things in-house as well. What's amazing, a company like Jabil, which is, it means built, as you say, it's built a digital platform connecting scores of factories around the world and it's created an optimized manufacturing powerhouse, really. But Ooh. I must admit, I'd never heard of it. And, and that's, that's what's uh, truly, truly daunting in, in that we'll, we, from what you say, there's going to be an emergence of a new generation of these, these pan-industrial companies from, and they, they may well come from nowhere. Very true. 
and, and you're seeing another interesting element of what, what you're arguing is that you're seeing a shift in the, the geopolitical balance of power away from China and back to the West and Japan because of this trend. Can, can you explain why, why that's going to happen? Why is it going to be a good thing for the, the West and Japan? A couple of things. We've lost a lot of jobs to the Asian tigers in China uh, from the West and, and also Japan has lost the same kind of thing. Um, so the 3D printing now requires a lot less assembly, which means you don't need the tigers and the emerging economies and China to assemble stuff for you. In addition, 3D printing is less capital intensive. So you don't have to spend $300 million to build a plant. And then in order to cover the cost of that ship all over the world, you can build a, a $20 million plant and fill it up with uh, 3D printers that, that uh, cost 150000 each instead of uh, $25 million that, that um, you know, the conventional manufacturing would require. Um, so these two things allow you then to localize your production. Now, what, is, what does that do once you localize production? First, you can have many more nodes in your, in your network. And because you've got the digital platform, you can coordinate them. Or secondly, you can produce um, a product eventually with all its different parts with multiple materials in one printer. Uh, uh, and as a consequence of, of that, uh, you start to see the industry revolutionize in a way that has very, very different patterns of trade. So uh, today, um, China is using essentially a neo-mercantilist system um, that was much like the British Empire in the 1800s. They have a core dominance in best manufacturing in the world. Uh, and emerging economies sell their raw materials into, into China, and then they sell it to rich people in the West, the final product. Um, and uh, uh, 3D printing changes that flow, because now if you're making things close to the customer, then the product uh, or the raw materials uh, and components get sold into the, the US or into Britain or France or wherever. Um, it, these powders and resins and pieces now get assembled or, um, with relatively uh, little labor and little time investment. And so this changes now the whole flow of trade. Uh, what happens to China if they're no longer the center of the manufacturing universe? Um, and uh, uh, this kind of takes away their central power from the neo-mercantilist system uh, because they're now not the central node in control of everything go coming in and going out. The consequence of that means is uh, uh, that is 
that we probably aren't going to create a lot of jobs in the West doing this because a lot of this would be automation. Uh, but the um, trade balances would change. Uh, the hard currency flow into uh, Asian countries um, would uh, would be eliminated, and that starts to affect you know your ability to pay debt and how much your budget is imbalanced. Um, and the consequence of all of that is that ultimately um, power shifts back to the West. And, and you say that manufacturing will move closer to consumers. And I presume that's good news for, for consumers. Uh, yes, it is. I think so. Um, because these uh, uh, will be able to deliver faster, uh, they'll be able to serve uh, the big box uh, and giant retailers that seem to be uh, coming together. Uh, and they'll... Uh, and, and they'll be able to tailor more to local conditions. Uh, you know, I buy the same uh, Toyota as somebody in Southern California, uh, but living in New Hampshire, uh, you know, I'm driving through a lot more snow. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, when you're wearing your gloves, for example, uh, in this very cold weather, the buttons are too small to push uh, because your hands are now very bulky with the with the gloves. And uh, whereas in Southern California, you can have these little small buttons because you're just pushing them with your fingers. So here in New England, basically they force you to freeze uh, before the car is warmed up just to turn on uh, just to turn on everything and adjust where your seat is and so forth and, and so on. And just a simple change like that makes uh, a, a more um, pleasant experience, especially when the temperature outside is minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Are you optimistic by what's happening? I mean, to some extent, it's, it is amazing and it's exciting that um, Adidas can make uh, tens of thousands of advanced running shoes using 3D printing and we can make coral reefs. I, I can see the, the technological excitement. Uh, but also there's worry, as you say, about uh, lose, losing jobs and, and where it leads. So are you optimistic about the, the pan-industrial revolution? Yes, I am. Some people would think of it as um, a dystopia that would be created. Giant corporations, dominating governments, people working for those corporations, um, you know, something out of alien with... Uh, Wayland uh, uh, Utani, um, these big giant uh, corporations that control the world. Um, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think what we're going to have is abundance with fewer people having positions in manufacturing. Now, for a country like the United States, uh, very few people all, uh, any, make anything anymore. Uh, you know, something like 3% of the workforce is actually in the factory. Uh, 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 and we've converted over to a service economy. So we're not going to lose that many jobs. Uh, and if you go back to the coral reef example, um, just imagine how many jobs that creates 
and not necessarily for high-tech people uh, because now uh, a food company can harvest fish from its own proprietary uh, you know sea uh, based or ocean based um, coral reef and they can do it out at sea with a, with a floating uh, uh, factory ship uh, many of which already exist is a big thing for the Soviet Union used to love um, these uh, industrialized uh, uh, frozen fish uh, uh, ships and um, things can be frozen out in the ocean um, uh, uh, on the ship and then when you bring it back to port now there's a bigger abundance of fish which means lots of new frozen uh, fish um, uh, products will be developed uh, restaurants will open up with more seafood in them and so forth and so on and a lot of non-technical jobs uh, will be created so I see great hope in that potential. Some of the latest things that I've been reading about um, won't be out for 10 or 15 years, but when they come into play, it's uh, amazing because design principles are changing. Uh, let me give you one example. There is uh, one group that is 3D printing what's called a bionic mushroom. And this is kind of, it looks like a mushroom. Um, uh, but what happens is, is they introduce uh, two kinds of bacteria into all these tiny little capillaries built in the mushroom. And, uh, and it, it's really a plastic mushroom. It's just, it's not a bi biological one. But the chemicals come together and they create photosynthesis, which is then converted into electricity, and you get bioelectricity. So you can cover the roof of a, of a, a building or put them in fields without the giant solar panels, um, and they would create electricity. And now, when that gets perfected, just think about the the kind of spin-offs that we have there, uh, the, the possibilities that we have. Uh, uh, let me give you another example. There, uh, uh, somebody just recently collect, uh, connected their Alexa to one of those plastic fish, uh, fishes um, that you, you put up on the wall and then it, it sings like a Frank Sinatra song. Um, and uh, just imagine the potential of that where you could print out heads that speak uh, to you through Alexa or through wires or whatever. Um, and uh, uh, first of all, there's a big joke market. You can put your ex-spouse or your uh, boss's face on there and make them say stupid things um, that would make you <laughs> laugh. Um, uh, you know, you can put any, anything you want in there. Um, and, and then you could also, uh, uh, I don't know if you remember the, uh, there was a movie called, I think, uh, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. Do, not, do you remember I'm, that? I, I'm not sure I saw that one. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, uh, well, it's self-explanatory. <laughs> Some guy is a killer and 
uh, kills eight people, and then he's chopped the heads off so that he can uh, hide the identity of the bodies. Uh, and somebody else picks up the duffel bag at the airport by accident because it looks like his duffel bag. And he, he gets home and opens it up and there's 10 heads and he doesn't know what to do, or eight heads rather. And he stacks them up on a table and they start to sing. <laughs> and it's a very funny movie if you haven't seen it. But just imagine this idea of you know being able to print out um, uh, what is a facial expression and put voice recognition and artificial language uh, and translation services into it and, and so forth. Uh, it doesn't have to be as macabre as the eight heads in a duffel bag, but it could uh, conceivably fit all kinds of other uses, you know, like even being uh, a, a, you know, a kind of, uh, uh, you know, crazy receptionist. But let's stick with the bionic mushrooms. They sound, they, they sound a more optimistic view of the future, Rich. Oh, you think so? I just love, I just love the macabre and bizarre nature of, of these uh, talking artificial heads. There's no, I mean, it's not alive. It's just another machine. And it's, Lex, it's, a, it's basically an Alexa um, with a different cover on it. That's it. Yeah. So, I mean, the amazing thing, I mean, these things are possible. Macabre and bizarre as they are, these things are increasingly possible. And that's what, I mean, your book is basically a, an introduction to the, the, the possibilities, many of which are already happening. Yes, I, I think so. So now is the right time to write the book. Uh, but there's still a lot of naysayers out there, especially amongst the engineers because of, you know, trying to protect their own jobs, trying to keep with the old paradigm, which they know well, and the new paradigm um, is baffling to them. So they're, you know, they know they're going to be replaced by younger engineers. Um, <clears throat> and some, some of it's just through ignorance, because a lot of what goes on is, is shielded by this... Uh, code of secrecy that that still exists in the industry well hopefully hopefully companies will begin talking to you uh, after after they've, they've read the pan-industrial revolution i hope so richard devaney entertaining and insightful uh, as always from uh, bionic mushrooms to the the future of competition M many thanks for joining us well, thank you for having me it's uh, always a pleasure to talk to you Stuart. all right nice talking to you rich this is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery.